If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and James chapter 3. And while you're getting to those passages, uh, let me just explain one verse before we even begin to read God's word. In verse 12, uh, you can see once again that whoever is writing this wants us to believe that the preacher is Solomon, who was longtime king in Jerusalem. You can see in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, verse 12, that he is not describing himself as a king who is beginning his reign, but rather he's a man who has been king in Jerusalem. And you actually see uh, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles 5 through 7 as well. You see him operating as the convener of the assembly of God's people. You see him kind of leading the liturgy and, and, and being the lead instructor in those passages. So the character Koheleth is meant to be seen as the wayward King Solomon reflecting on his godless lifestyle at the end of his days. But even if this is not actually Solomon writing this book, there's a good explanation as to why the the author would describe himself as the king. There's a good explanation as to why he would take on the mantle of Solomon and speak to us as if he was the elderly king looking back on his life. Apparently, in ancient Near Eastern literature, or in the literature of that day, it was not uncommon for a man uh, who was king, or even if he wasn't king, to describe himself as such, as, as a literary device to pass on his knowledge and wisdom to the generations to come. So apparently, not just kings, but other men as well, who had something to say to th- their children and grandchildren, to their great-grandchildren, to those who were yet to even be thought of, this is how they would recount their life for the moral edification of their audience. Does that make sense? All right, so that kind of helps us piece together maybe perhaps another reason as to why an author who wasn't Solomon would take on the mantle of King Solomon in order to give us wisdom. Having said that, if you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Now we turn to James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Now, every one of you has probably seen or used at one point or another a George Foreman grill. Just by a quick show of hands, uh, how many of you, although they were outlawed in your college dorm, you had one of these or a hot plate or maybe two? How many of you? Yeah, I had a Foreman grill at Tennessee Tech University there in Maddox-McCord dormitory at the end of campus. So George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing in his early to mid-20s, and then he became champion again in his mid-40s. And in between those two stints in boxing, he was a spokesman, a brand ambassador for several brands, including the Foreman Grill, which was named after him. Uh, And he was also a minister of the gospel. Now, George Foreman could hit like a train, right? Uh, When he began to box, uh, learning how to punch and punch with power was not part of the problem. According to a recent biopic that was released about his life, the problem was footwork. He would just kind of chase guys around the ring and then get frustrated with the fact that they would not stand right in front of him and let him just knock him, you know, cold to the ground, right? So he had to learn footwork. He had to learn how to cut people off in the ring in order to keep people right in front of him so he could land those monstrous punches. Now, two weeks ago, I said that the preacher is telling us that we live well down here by looking beyond the sun. I said that under the sun is a life of heaven. It's a life of you know, frustration, and and it's a fleeting life, because that's how life is in a temporal and fallen world. And and last week, what we saw in verses uh, 4 through 11 were a satiric attack on the secular alternative to the biblical worldview, right? Solomon, in those verses, he goes through a litany of things while wearing his, you know, secular man, anti-hero outfit to, you know, help you see that all of these things are ultimately Hevel, right? He does that in order to stoke within us a desire, a hunger for something greater. What's he doing in these verses today? Well, he's cutting off the ring. He's using rhetoric like footwork in his fight against secularism in all its various forms. People might read the litany of things that we covered last week in verses 4 through 11, and they might think, I have a cure. You just haven't tried the right kind of secularism yet. Right? We will use secular humanism. That's why you're also empty and bored and dissatisfied. You have to improve your lives through reason as opposed to religion or superstition. So pursue knowledge. Pursue wisdom. Pursue intellectual powers and turn that frown upside down. That's how you'll improve your lives and your outlook on life itself. But Solomon is beating those people to the punch. He's thrown bombs. He's thrown haymakers on secularism already in chapter 1. And before the ancient Near Eastern kind of dark web intellectuals can slip out of his sight, he pivots and he starts landing body blow after body blow against secular humanism. For those of you that are more tender in heart and you're like, I don't really like these boxing metaphors. Well, the author David Gibson put it this way, Solomon continues his demolition job by bursting bubbles, right? You can imagine a happy child or a handful of children out in the park and there's all these bubbles and Solomon comes in with a bunch of needles and just starts going. We live well down here by looking beyond the sun. And this applies to wisdom and knowledge 
as well. Wisdom not received from beyond the sun is worldly wisdom, and it's fleeting, and it's frustrating. Now, you might object and say, look, uh, this wisdom in these verses, in verses, you know, 12 through 18, they're never called worldly wisdom, Pastor Nate. Well, one theologian who is widely known to be an expert of the Hebrew, of the wisdom literature, the Old Testament, he said this, Solomon says nothing of the first principle of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. The wisdom that he speaks of is the best thinking that man can do on his own. See, when Solomon is talking about godly wisdom, you can find that in the book of Proverbs, and he roots Lady wisdom, wisdom personified. He grounds that in the fear of the Lord. He grounds that. He connects that to fearing God. He doesn't do that here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Worldly wisdom. This is the big idea of today's sermon. Worldly wisdom is vaporous. It's hevel. That's the word he uses. It's most vaporous. And he knows that to be true. Because he used worldly wisdom to observe human activity. He used it like an instrument, a tool. And he was also a connoisseur, an aficionado, a collector of worldly wisdom. So he he used wisdom as a means to an end, and he also used wisdom as an end itself. And what this passage illustrates is that in our fallen condition as sinful human beings, we can desire, we can acquire, and we can employ worldly wisdom. And yet the efforts and the results will be fleeting and frustrating. Worldly wisdom will not do for us what we hope it will do. So first, let's look at how Solomon used worldly wisdom as a means, as an instrument, as a tool. We can see this in verses 13 through 15. So wisdom was the instrument. This is how he's going to observe, digest, and understand all the matters of human activity. He's not going to observe every single minute detail of the earth. His main goal is to use wisdom to observe human action, what human beings are doing under the sun. This is the tool that's going to help him make sense of life. Right? What's his job? What's his quest? To seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Well, seek and search out are virtual synonyms, right? He uses more than one term. The Venn diagram of these two terms is a lot like this. You can barely see the gap, the difference between the two. What he's doing here is he's explaining that he's not merely man glancing, right? Ladies, you know what that is? Have you heard, have you heard this term? You've experienced this even if you've never heard of that term. It's when you send your husband who might be tired or disinterested or groggy or whatever, you send him out to the garage to look for something, and he comes back in so quickly, you're like, there's no way you actually looked, right? Kids do it, right? Uh, we come by it honestly. We, we start doing it as children, and then we just, some of us never really grow out of it. My poor wife, she's been the victim of many man glances on my, on my end, right? Did you look? Yeah. Did you try hard? My, my pretty hardest. You know, I, uh, so that, what he's communicating here is he's not just kind of wandering outside and man glancing at the world by wisdom and coming up with nothing. Now he's, he's doing a real investigation. He's asking serious questions. He wants to understand life's happenings and the meaning of life itself. He's giving 110%. He's all in. How serious was he? Well, he applied his heart. And many of you that have the English Standard Version, you can look in your Bible right now, and you, most of you will have an edition that has a footnote that explains what that word heart means. Right? It, it, it talks about how there's cognition, affection, and volition involved. The, the word heart here is the inner life, the inner, the inner life of man. It's not the material, physical man. It's the inner man. 
And the inner man cogitates. He thinks. He meditates. He desires. He loves. He makes choices. He has a will. You see what Solomon is saying here? This consumed his inner life. This is what he thought about as he went about his day. This is what he dreamt about. There's a recent poll uh, that came out on social media. And the poll was, you know, how, how many times uh, or how often do men think about the Roman Empire? Some of you are grinning because you've heard about this. Women were stunned by the results. They saw it and they went to their husbands and their fathers like, do you really think about the Roman Empire like every day? And then men will often pause and go, I probably think about the Roman Empire more than other people, right? Uh, you may not meditate on the Roman Empire every day, but many men have been reporting, yeah, I think about it at least in a fleeting sense like every day or every other day. And women are stunned by this, right? What I'm saying is that this was kind of that for Solomon. He's thinking about it all the time, even when he doesn't realize he's thinking about it, right? This is a quest deep within his inner life. This is get the ring of power to Mount Doom and throw it in level stuff for him. Does that make sense? This is not a hobby. This is a quest mission thing, right? That's what he's on here. What did he see? It's, it's an interesting in verse 13, he tells you that he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And immediately in the second half of that verse, he tells you about how disappointed he is. What he saw is that God has given mankind an unhappy business. Have you ever gone looking for something in your attic, in your basement, in closets, in a store, online, and you get it and you finally find it, and then it just lets you down, right? This is happening to me all the time with old children's movies that I thought were really good from back in the day, and I watch them, I'm like, this is lame. I thought this was great. Right? Or, wow, I can't believe I watched this as a child. There's this kind of content in a G-rated movie from the early 90s. This is, this is terrible. That's what's happening here. His own bubble was quickly burst. I don't think he's bursting our bubble as an act of bitterness or some sort of weird revenge. I think he's bursting our bubble because we need to understand the truth as he understands it. Now, Riken, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says that a better way to translate this phrase, unhappy business, would be bad business. Because the Hebrew word ra is a moral category. This isn't merely like, oh, this is kind of a bummer. He's saying it's bad or evil. Remember, this is the secular humanist voice that, uh, that, that Solomon is speaking with here. And he's saying this business, this human activity in general, not a quest to understand life, but just our general daily activity, it's bad. We're concerned about or worried about bad business. There's something morally off about our activity. God has given us things to do, and yet it's bad. Well, how can he say that? Is there any truth to that? Or do we just, as Christians, need to dismiss him out of hand as speaking with a secular humanist voice? Well, what does Romans 14 verse 23 say? It's the last verse in chapter 14. Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is less than ideal, not so great. It's sin. See, the Great Commission is for Christians, but the cultural mandate found in, in Genesis given to Adam and then re-given to Noah is given to all of mankind. We all have this common activity, this common business that we are supposed to be about. And what Paul is saying in Romans 14 is that as you're doing your living upon the earth, as you're acting, as you're moving, if you're doing things that do not proceed from faith, it's sin. And so because Adam plunged us into the fall, because he plunged us into this sinful estate, Unless the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts, 
the business of being human as we do it upon the earth, it's in some sense bad, isn't it? So this is his evaluation. This is what Solomon saw as he went out into the world and he used wisdom as his observational tool. What did he find via worldly wisdom? He found everything that is done, right? Long before F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises were studying human action, Solomon was studying human action. And he determined that it's all hevel, right? Vapor. It's all like herding cats. That's our modern-day equivalent of saying striving after wind. Some translators translate it as chasing the wind, feeding the wind, or shepherding the wind. It doesn't really matter which one you pick. Because at the end of the day, you come up with nothing. You've accomplished nothing. I mean, you get a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of grain and kind of look down and go, okay, here comes the breeze. Three, two, one. We're gonna throw, that's how we're gonna, it's not going to work. You can't feed the wind. You can build a great big fence out in a paddock somewhere, and you can try to shepherd the wind. But even, even if you were never there, even if you never built that fence, guess how much breeze, how much wind would be in that field? The exact same amount, whether you were there or not. You can't shepherd the wind. What he's saying here is that our activity from the secular humanist Solomon point of view is frustrating and fleeting. We end up really doing nothing at all. Now, verse 15 and verse 18 are both kind of proverbs. They're both poetic reflections to encapsulate the previous verses. What's his reflection? How does he summarize all of this in verse 15? He's basically saying there are still things that we cannot make sense of or account for. Even the great preacher king is limited. He can't fix or change the way things are. Wisdom can only solve so many problems. The word that he uses here in verse 15 that's kind of interesting is crooked. Some people think that means moral or criminal in category. Other people put this in the category of disorderly, incorrect, or out of whack. And the third is that it would be something that's befuddling, it's puzzling, it's something beyond our comprehension. That's the view that I take because he uses this exact same word in Ecclesiastes 7.13. And he credits God for the crookedness. And in chapter 7, verse 13, he's not speaking from this humanistic kind of nihilistic or, uh, or, or secularist point of view. I think what he's doing in chapter 7 is he's saying there's mysteries that God has put in place and we don't understand them. Have you ever heard someone say, well, brother, well, sister, we'll understand all of this one day. Have you ever heard someone say that? They mean well, but the book of Ecclesiastes on multiple occasions will say that ain't true. There's things that you will not understand one day. The promise of glory, the promise of heaven is not that we get there one day and God goes, now let me give you omniscience where you can understand all the things that I understand. That's not promised to you. That's not what we're designed for. God is credited for this mystery, this crookedness. Human wisdom cannot unravel these mysteries that only God can understand. But he also says that there's things that cannot be counted. What he could mean is that there's pieces from the puzzle or the equation that are missing. There's these variables that we just don't have. Or he could be saying, you don't know what you don't know. He could be saying, we can't calculate what's not here, especially when we don't know that it's supposed to be here. We can't solve for X because for all we know, there's Y and Z missing from the equation. Uh, some of you are, are doing algebra right now and you feel that deep within your soul, don't you? some applications and implications for us to draw from these verses. Your effort, your intention, your sincerity, being all in 
in your heart, it won't spare you of hevel. There is a proper, undivided heart activity that we as Christians are to be about. And that is loving the Lord our God with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Secondly, your worldly wisdom is a tool with a logo on it. It's like a wrench, and you look down, and, and the brand name is Hevel. And you turn it over, and it says, Made Here Under the Sun. It's frustrating. So you can use worldly wisdom as a tool to observe life under the sun. But it's a far better business to use your powers of observation to behold the Lord and his goodness. That's far more profitable than trying to see everything that's done under the sun. I'm not saying don't be observant. I'm not saying don't behold the activity of mankind and and critically evaluate it. I'm saying there is something that we should be primarily focused on beholding, on observing, and that is the goodness of our Lord. Third, some things will not make sense or be sorted out. Life is not about answers. It's about trusting the Lord. Uh, Seven or eight days ago, I guess it's nine days ago now, uh, I was preparing a sermon, and I got a call from Leslie, and, and there's kind of this arrangement that I have with her. I'm like, look, when, I, when it's sermon prep time, call me if you or the boys are injured or dying, right? And 90% of the time, they're not injured or dying. When I get that phone call, she just forgets. Uh, but this time, Zeke was injured. And uh, I come home, and I'm calling urgent care on the way. Hey, do you guys do stitches? Yes, they do stitches. And so I get home, and there's my buddy standing in the kitchen doing this. I'm like, you got a question, buddy? Uh, and he's like, you know, I'm just holding my hand up here because uh, Cousin John said I have to, right, because he's trying to keep, the, you know, keep his, his wound above his heart. And it was all duct taped and paper toweled, and he did a great job. And so we, we, take, we, we take him in, and on the drive, he's like, man, we were about to read a Bible story at home. And I'm like, I guess I'm, I'm glad you're excited about Bible stories, buddy. But listen, uh, we're about to live out a story uh, that is similar to the, their stories. They had to trust the Lord, and today we're learning about trusting the Lord. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we're going to trust that God is good, and it's all going all to be okay, right? He's a typical firstborn child, so I'm trying to give him as many answers as I can. But my constant refrain was, buddy, I don't know if this is exactly how things are going to go. But God is good. You're going to trust Daddy. We together are going to trust the Lord, and I'm sure it's going to all be fine. Okay, so we get there and he got five stitches and he did great and everything, you know, everything did work out. Right. But even if it didn't work out the way we had hoped for, God was still good. God is still faithful. It wasn't about having all the answers. In fact, some of the answers that daddy gave him weren't exactly correct. Right. But he trusted God. That's what life is about. It's far better. Here's my point for this section. It's better to apply our hearts to loving God, seeing his goodness, and trusting him. This is the business of a truly wise man. Well, then Solomon in verses 16 through 18, he tells us about how he sought worldly wisdom as an end itself. Worldly wisdom isn't the the, uh, instrument in these verses, but rather it's the goal. I want want us to see how uh, what Solomon said to himself, what Solomon did, how it turned out, and how he felt about his success. Verse 16 contains a not-so-humble brag. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, meaning he's talking internally, he's saying to himself, I think that's how the New American Standard translates it, I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He's made it. That's what he's saying. 
He surpassed all who ruled in Jerusalem before him. And this is a big deal because in his social circle, not just in his time period, but amongst all wisdom literature authors, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible, wisdom itself is the quality most highly praised by those who seek to write wisdom literature. And he's looking at this long line of men that have ruled in this city before him. And he said, I've got more wisdom and knowledge than all of them. I've surpassed them all. Now, some have rejected the idea that this could be Solomon because he's only the third king of Israel altogether, and he's only the second to reign from Jerusalem. But for hundreds of years before his, uh, before his father David drove the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, there were governors, rulers, those reigning in Jerusalem. And we find out in Genesis chapter 14 that there was a king in the city of Salem, that's Jerusalem, named Melchizedek. Right, who, who Abraham got to meet. He's kind of this mysterious character, but we can discern, it seems, that he was ruling over this area that would become Jerusalem in the days of Solomon. So yes, there's only been three Israelite kings at the time of Solomon, and he was the last to rule over the United Kingdom, but there have been many, many men to govern from that town before him. So what did Solomon do, and how did he do it? Well, once again, He's seeking to understand wisdom itself, and he applies his heart. Same effort. He's all in. Same attitude. This is what I'm about. This is the quest, right? This is what I dream about. This is what I think about. You know, when one of my 700 wives and 300 concubines asks what I'm thinking, I'm thinking about this. Woman, now leave me alone, right? That's, that's what Solomon is essentially doing. He's fully focused on this. He's so focused on it, he even wanted to reverse engineer it. He wanted to understand wisdom by understanding its opposite, which is folly. Now, this phrase, madness and folly, I think it's a, a hendiatus, which means that this should be translated as madness that is folly. You know the expression law and order? That's law that is order. That's an example of what a hendiatus is. Right? So he's seeking out to understand madness that is folly. And he's not talking about mental oddity or insanity. Everybody's got, got that cousin or that uncle that comes at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and they're just an odd bird, right? The way they think, the way they see the world, they're just different. That's not what he's saying here. He's going about his quest, not in an eccentric way, but in the dumbest way possible. He lived a rebellious life of mad foolishness. And if wisdom frustrates a wise man, folly will certainly leave him more than disappointed. He decided, I'm going to get to know the light by dancing with the devil in the dark. That's so silly. It's absolute foolishness. That's contrary to wisdom. And it didn't work out for him. This is how he summarizes the value of it. You see this in, in verse 17. For all of his resources, for all of his powers, again he is like a child at the park chasing a breeze. He's like, this is also striving after the wind. And he's out there with his bug net. What is that kid doing? There's no bugs out today. He's trying to catch the wind. The endeavor did not go as planned. He came up empty. Was he satisfied with his accomplishment? No, quite the opposite. He was vexed, terribly, terribly vexed. One author put it this way, vexation is an irritation that comes right up to the border of anger. Right? So he wasn't excited about this. He surpassed all these men in knowledge and in the experience of knowledge and wisdom. And he's like, there's just vexation for me. See, worldly wisdom removes the rosy glasses that we wear in our naivete. But it doesn't give us the hope of the gospel, does it? 
right? So you're kind of walking through life with these rose-colored shades on and someone pulls them off and smashes them on the ground and then doesn't give you the gospel hope. Now, now you see the world for how frustrating and fleeting it is, but you have no hope. No hope in Jesus. Derek Kidner said this, Wisdom is concerned with truth, and truth compels us to admit that success can go bad on us and that nothing on earth has any permanence. That's what's happened to Solomon. In his worldly wisdom, he's concerned with truth, but the truth compels him to admit that his success in surpassing everyone in wisdom and knowledge is disappointing. I've been listening to this book. It's a fantasy fiction book from the 1970s. It's called The Book of the Duncow. And in this book, all the characters are farm animals, and the, the lords of the land are roosters. And there's this one kind of terrible ruler. He's, he's old. He's not very honorable. He's not well-respected. He's just not a strong leader at all. His name's Cynix. And, and the author describes in this moment, at the end of his life, that a look of infinite knowledge came over his face and then despair. Right? So he understood something. He got something that none of the other farm animals, animals understood, and it led him to despair. And then he died. It's a very sad story arc for cynics. What Solomon is saying and what that passage from the book of the Duncow is illustrating is ignorance is kind of blissful. Right? You ever come to know something, you're like, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> I wish I could go back to 30 seconds ago when I didn't know that. There's a curse of knowledge. He says it increases sorrow. I can remember when I was in uh, journalism school at Tennessee Tech and my uh, dubious wisdom at 19 years old, I thought, free ride to an engineering school. Strong math skills. Let's do journalism. Uh, and I can remember being told by a professor, follow the money. And it was, like, it was like my eyes were open to the ways of the world. And I can remember being told what the AP Wire was. It's this website where journalists go, and we can kind of see all the stories that are going on around the world. We can kind of draw information and then begin to like write uh, quick stories for the local paper. That was back when the, the paper was still a thing, mostly. And if you go to the AP World website, they have just stories from all the different corners of the earth. And they aren't showing you stories of squirrels on jet skis, right? And puppies learning sign language and orangutans like pointing to ladies, you know, give me the gummy bears out of your purse. Like, you don't get those stories on that website. You get all the global tragedies, right? And you just doom scroll. You go to that website, you can understand why they call it doom scrolling. And you just, you just take it all in, all these different things that are happening in the world, and you're like, I'm full of sorrow by reading this website. I wish I didn't know. How many of you have seen a movie or a show in which there's a character? They work for the government, usually in these movies or shows. Sometimes they don't. And they're just kind of blissfully ignorant. And then all of a sudden, they're handed a file or they receive an email by accident. And all of a sudden, they know deep institutional state secrets, right? And all of a sudden, they're on the run. They become the subject of a manhunt. And the CIA and Interpol and everybody's after them because they're a danger to national security. What they really mean to say is they're a danger uh, to us as institutions because they might expose all the corrupt things we're doing without the public knowing about it. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, the point is they're blissfully ignorant. And then they become wise to the way of things. They have this knowledge. And their life is filled with sorrow from that point forward. We've all seen those stories. Here's some applications and implications for us. Experience only means so much. Godliness is what matters. Being the smartest guy in the room is useless if you aren't godly. Just imagine being Solomon. He's standing there, you know, in some room somewhere in Jerusalem. And he's like, I'm the smartest guy to ever stand in this room. 
And it was useless to him, wasn't it? There's a second thing to consider. Consider the cost of knowing madness that is folly. Holiness is better than experiential knowledge of wickedness, right? You can get a pretty good idea of what hamburger meat and T-bone steaks will look like if you sneak onto a cow farm at night and you tip over a cow and you cut them open and start looking around. But the bull that lives in that pasture and the owner of the cow isn't going to take too kindly to it. Just go to the butcher shop the next day and take his word for it, right? You don't need to understand the light better by pursuing the dark and getting a handle on what the darkness is. Just trust God's word when it tells you about what evil and sin looks like. Here's a third implication. Consider the cost of knowing much. You ever feel like, well, I want to know what's going on. I wish I knew more about the world than I know. Right? Be content. I'm not saying be apathetic or be complacent. I'm not saying... Like, don't seek to have an understanding of the way that the world works and what's going on out in the world. But just be careful. Social media, 24-hour news cycles, the Internet, these are like portals into the far corners of the earth. And, And we're not designed as temporal human beings to take all of that in. Once again, there's a reason it's called doom scrolling. There's a reason that you get done and you're like, whew, where's the time gone? I feel tired even though I've just been sitting here in this nice, comfortable chair. It's doing something to your soul. There's a feigned omniscience that we get and experience through social media and through the internet, through the 24-hour news cycle. We just know all of these different things. This is not verbatim, but C.S. Lewis, just back when there was magazines and newspapers, his reflection on this was, we're not capable of handling all that goes into the national newspaper. We're not built to take all that in. If he was right back then, how much more right is he today? So just be cautious. Consider the cost of knowing much. Well, that's worldly wisdom. Is, is there an alternative that Solomon can offer us? Is he going to give us some, some, you know, some hope here? Well, yes, he does in the book of Proverbs. He encouraged, this same Solomon that wrote this, he encouraged godly wisdom. Right? He personified wisdom in the book of Proverbs to be lady wisdom. Right? This very attractive character who's calling out to us, who wants us to come to, to know her, to listen to her. Wisdom is described in the Bible as being side by side with the Lord as he laid the foundations of the earth. She's described as this lady who will protect us, who will save us. She wants us to become well acquainted with her. Now, what happens if we do that? What happens if we get to know Lady Wisdom? What happens if we answer her invitation to come over for tea and to get to know her? Well, here's six things from the book of Proverbs. This isn't exhaustive, but here's six things that offer us a glimpse at what the alternative to worldly wisdom will do for us. First, we will dwell securely and be at ease. That's Proverbs 1, verse 33. Now, is that a promise of total security and total comfort in a fallen and broken sinful world? No, but that sure is contrary to sorrow and vexation, isn't it? Number two, we will understand righteousness, justice, and equity. See, if you get to know Lady Wisdom, this is what you'll understand, rather than the madness that is folly. And isn't that better? That's what Proverbs 2, 9 promises us, that by wisdom we will understand righteousness, justice, and equity. Number three, wisdom grants us an inheritance as we love her. That's Proverbs 8, 21. So you're not going to be striving after the wind. You can strive after the wind, go down the path of worldly wisdom, or you can get to know Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And what you're granted is an inheritance. 
Number four, this is found in Proverbs 8, verse 32, will be blessed by God. Godly wisdom brings blessing from the Lord. That's contrary to the feeling of vexation and being left to a bad business. Number five, Proverbs 8, verses 35 through 36, we can obtain God's favor in life. Right? If you go down the path of worldly wisdom, you'll attain nothing because it's heavy. It's most vaporous. It's a striving after the wind. But if you pursue godly wisdom, there's something that can actually be obtained, and it's favor from God and life. Isn't, aren't those far better alternatives? Here's number six. Proverbs 9.11. See, by wisdom we will multiply our days. By wisdom, years will be added to our life. This is exactly what one of the psalmists that I quoted last week, this is one of, what one of uh, his prayers was, that he would live longer. Right? More years of godly living in the eyes of the psalmist was that there was a purpose for it. And that was to tell of the deeds of God to a generation that was not yet there. See, more years of godly living means more years of passing on godly wisdom to the next generations of people within the church. So which one is better? What should we conclude? I think the application of this passage is that we must live by godly wisdom. This passage isn't deterring us from knowing wisdom. It's, it's deterring us from worldly wisdom. See, one of the things that ended up happening in George Foreman's life was that he was converted uh, to, to, to know Jesus. He grew up in a Christian home. His mother prayed for him and with him. Often he, in his youth, he, as he became famous and rich and the heavyweight champion, he was full on just walking in a, a wicked, wicked path. But, but he came to saving faith and he gave up that life of folly. He even went so far as to travel to see Muhammad Ali, who had just defeated him down uh, in the Thrilla in Manila. That's what that fight was called. And he sat down across from Muhammad Ali and he asked for his forgiveness. He said, Muhammad, when we stepped in that ring, I didn't want to beat you. I wanted to kill you. And he asked for his forgiveness. And Muhammad Ali was like, yeah, I forgive you, but I can't forgive you if you don't fight me again so we can make a whole lot more money. Like, please, like, let's just fight one more time. We'll both be rich. Like, come on. And he, he stepped out of the ring. He didn't, he didn't have any desire to box anymore. He found the source of godly wisdom instead of all the cheap knockoffs that he'd been chasing his whole life. Now, after he became the spokesman for the Foreman Grill, there were a whole lot of knockoffs. Everybody was producing their George Foreman Grill lookalike. Everybody was doing their own version, but there was only one true Foreman Grill. Now, worldly wisdom can be found in lots of places. There's lots of knockoffs out there, and a lot of it is better than nothing. But James warns us in that passage that we read earlier that there is a cheap worldly knockoff that is demonic. There's, so there's lots of knockoffs out there, but there's one, you know, basically, if you'll follow this analogy, there's a Foreman grill that's a knockoff. When you plug it in, it's going to blow up, right? It's not going to work, right? That's what he's warning us. And yet, because there is a degree of common grace to be found in the world and, that is made and sustained by God, worldly wisdom isn't always demonic. It can be good and helpful, but there's only one source of godly wisdom, and that is Christ. Paul told the church at Corinth that God made the wisdom of the world foolish. And the wisdom of the world is not able to lead us to a knowledge of God. Worldly wisdom does not have the divine power to save you. It does not have the divine power to change the world. No, Christ is the power of God. And Christ is the wisdom of God. And as Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Worldly wisdom is hevel, and we must live by the wisdom of God in Christ, which is found in God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for sending us the wisdom of Solomon and his critique of worldly wisdom. We thank you for not leaving us to walk blindly in our foolishness, but rather you revealed to us by the word and spirit, your son, Jesus Christ, who is your power and wisdom. We thank you for the scriptures that have spoken to us today in the name of the one who taught us to pray, our Father.